You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Today we're continuing our series called A Summer in the Psalms, and we're going to be studying the passage of Psalm 110. And if you have, are using one of those black Bibles that um, John mentioned, that's page 509. <clears throat> in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Magician's Nephew, the two main characters there, Diggory and Polly, part of the story, they discover these magic pools. And when they jump into the magic pool, it takes them, transports them from one world to another. And reading Psalm 110 feels a little bit like jumping into a pool and going from one place to another. At one point, you're sitting in that, that um, wood between the worlds, and it's peaceful and it's calm, and you're just reading the psalm. But when you lean into it and you dig into it, you realize how close you are to things happening in different places. Um, and so I'd like to dig into this, this passage and jump into this pool together. Um, psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us because he loves us. Let's pray. God of truth, help us to lift up the gates of our souls that Christ may come in. Show us Christ as we search the scriptures. We have no lines to fathom its depths, no wings to soar its heights. By his his aid, may we be enabled to explore all of its truths. Amen. So this passage makes two puzzling statements. First, in verse 1, someone is seated on the throne next to Yahweh. And second, someone is a priest forever. And I'd like to unpack this passage and see how Jesus himself and the apostles will use it to show Jesus as the promised Messiah. So today let's jump in and approach this passage in three parts. First, we're going to look at David's past. Then we'll look at David's future. And finally, we'll look at our present. In this third section, I want to look at what the author of Hebrews says about Psalm 110 and how this truth impacts our daily lives, how we pray, how we live, and how we ultimately approach this table. So let's begin with David's past. I don't know if we have any Eric Church fans in the house. Um, Don't know if uh, I'll be asked to preach again after making a country music reference so early. Um, But uh, here it goes anyway. 
there's, there's a line in one of his songs, the song's called Springsteen, and the line goes like this, funny how a melody sounds like a memory, like a soundtrack to a July Saturday night. And in this song, he's telling his listeners that every time this Bruce Springsteen song comes on, it takes him back to his high school days, driving around in his Jeep with his now ex-girlfriend, as every good country song does. <laughs> but every time he hears that song, he goes back to that moment in time. And songs do that to us, don't they? They transport us. They conjure up memories and tastes and smells, flashes of moments with friends and with family. The Psalms are a collection of songs and of prayers. And it's important for us to remember this style of literature as we look at this. Psalm 110 would have done the same thing to those in ancient Israel as they recited these words in worship to God. It would take them back to the things that God had done for them. In verse 3, we read, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Reciting these verses could hearken back to Deborah's song in Judges chapter 5, where she sang blessings to the Lord for delivering them from the hands of Sisera, his chariots, and his armies. In verse 4, we read, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. This could pull up a memory of God speaking through Balaam, a message to Balak in Numbers 23, that no human power would prevail against him. And verse 4 goes on to say, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious character, Melchizedek, gave a blessing to Abram after celebrating a great victory by the hand of the Lord as Abram saved Lot from captivity. And finally, verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This could bring to mind the story of Gideon's 300 in Judges chapter 7, who lapped water by the stream before God delivered the defeat of the armies of the Midianites in a daring nighttime raid. All of these are instances in Israel's history where God prevailed over their enemies when all hope appeared to be lost. We see these references over and over again in the Psalms, and they're hints back to moments where God delivered his people. They're there to offer encouragement. They're there to remind the Israelites that they serve a God who can be trusted. They're there to build up their souls as they face hard times. They serve as a reminder that God sits outside of time. While the story of redemption spans generations, he is consistent and he's faithful to every single lifetime that exists within it. He's sovereign over all things under the sun. So as David, led by the Spirit, records these words in Psalm 110, he's thinking back on what God has done, how he's been faithful to his people. But while he's doing this, he's also looking forward. Because by the Spirit, David sees one of his descendants will one day sit at God's right hand. And with that, let's look at David's future. Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In your, in your text, you may notice that there's a difference in the capitalizations of the word Lord. The first use of Lord is all caps. That indicates that in the original Hebrew, the word Yahweh is used. That's the covenant name of God. 
The second use of Lord is likely capital L and then lowercase for the rest of it. Um, that indicates that there's, there's two people having a conversation here. What, what this brings out is a puzzling question. Um, so there's King David. He's a king's king and a warrior's warrior. And he's writing about another figure who's been welcomed by Yahweh to sit at his right hand. This is a place of authority, and this king will do great things. He will expand the kingdom, and he will bring enemies into submission. This is an earthly king looking forward to the perfect king that is to come. And while David could only look forward in faith, we have the gift of Scripture. This allows us to see that God continues to work to bring about this vision in the person and work of Jesus. So to get a picture of this king that's to come, let's go to Matthew chapter 22. And a little background on where we're jumping in here. At this point, Jesus is taking questions from the Sadducees and from the Pharisees. The Sadducees and Pharisees were two groups of Jewish teachers who held a lot of influence um, in the minds of the people. And they were wise men. They knew the law backwards and forwards. And Jesus' teaching at that time was radical. And his teaching generated a lot of followers, generated a lot of buzz. And so that threatened to undermine the influence of the Sadducees uh, and the Pharisees in the, in the eyes of the people. So that's why in Matthew 22, verse 15, we read that they plotted to entangle Jesus in his words. And they attempted to do this by throwing him a couple curveball questions. They asked him about taxes. They asked him about how marriage will work in heaven. But even these challenging questions couldn't stump him. His responses left them silent. And in the text, we see that the crowds loved it. They were hanging on Jesus's every word. So in, in verse 42, Matthew twenty-two forty-two, we hear Jesus take a turn at asking a question. He asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They, the, the Pharisees here said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and here Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are under your feet. Now he delivers his question to them. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him any questions. This Psalm 110, this is the passage that Jesus uses to show these Jewish leaders that he is the Messiah, the king that David referred to as Lord. Pastor and reformer John Calvin said of this passage, since Christ is called Lord of David his father, it follows that there is something more excellent in him than his humanity. How else could he be elevated to the rank of dignity next to God who himself is exalted above creation. And as we consider this full passage, we see this more excellent king that will accomplish much, much more than King David ever could. When we read this psalm, we see a king on the move. Here in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. His territory is not static. He's advancing out from Zion. The message is coming out to the rest of the world. 
He advances with a holy army dressed for worship out to all corners of the world. And this past spring, we studied the book of Acts, and we got to see this advancement begin. We got to see the Holy Spirit fall on the believers in Jerusalem, and then fall on the believers in Samaria, and then ultimately fall on the believers in Antioch and the rest of the world. This is a kingdom in advance, and a king sits enthroned who is leading that advanced that advance. But that leaves us with the question of, will this advance be successful? Continues in verse 5. And here David appears to shift his focus in language where he's talking directly to Yahweh. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in referencing Psalm 110 here that he is the Christ and that his kingdom will look very different from the kingdom that David had built. What happened, this, this image of Jesus here conjures up the question for me of what happened to this Sunday school room picture of Jesus with perfectly combed hair holding a lamb and petting it? Because what we see here is a king on a rampage. Psalm 110 points us to the day where every knee will bow to King Jesus. As Christians, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we see this reality coming, and by faith we profess this to be true, because the outcome has already been established. If you ever hear someone say that Jesus was just a nice person, that he just preached love, I encourage you to share these verses with them. Let's look again at verse 1. Jesus, or the, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This until is another example in Scripture where God's justice waits on his mercy. Another place in Scripture where we see this is in Genesis chapter 13. Here in Genesis 13, 13, it says, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. So here he's talking about the time that the Israelites would spend in, in Egypt in slavery. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with the great possessions. And as for you, Abram, you shall go to be with your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now the Amorites were the pagan people who lived in the land that God had promised to Abram's descendants. God is telling Abram that one day his people will have this land. But first, his descendants must go spend 400 years in slavery. That's a complicated thought, but what we see here is that before God puts his judgment on this people, he's giving them 400 years in that place because their, it says here that their iniquities had not yet been complete. God's justice waits on his mercy, but his justice will come. This is the tension of already and not yet that we refer to quite often here at Liberty. Jesus has already won our salvation, that is, that is firm and secure and complete. But we, 
in our hearts, in our families, as we turn on the news and look around us, we see the ravaging effects of sin every single day. And we ask, Lord, why won't you do something about this? But this time, this until, where we find ourselves now is not in vain because this is the time where the gospel is advancing out of Zion. This is the time that souls are being won for Christ. And this is the time when Jesus' kingdom expands. Going back to the psalm, there's something else puzzling that's going on here. Jesus isn't only referred to as a king, he's also referred to as a priest. Among God's people, these are separate and distinct offices, priest and king. By the power of the Holy Spirit, David writes in this psalm that he hears the Lord say to this king seated next to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As David's descendant, Jesus is not, as nearly all priests were, a Levite from the line of Aaron. He is instead of the order of Melchizedek. And we meet this mysterious Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And here, Abram's nephew, Lot, gets captured by a group of kings. There's a regional rebellion happening. Um, there's a clashing of forces. And Lot and his family are in the wrong place in the wrong time, and they get swept up in this. Um, they're captured by this king, and everything that they have is taken along with them. There's one person who makes it out, who makes it to Abram's place and tells him what happened. And Abram, as one does, rounds up his men, sets off in pursuit. Um, and he finally catches up with these kings, and a battle ensues, and Abram and Lot are victorious with the help of God. Uh, Lot and his family are saved, and as they're on their way back from this battle, back to their home, they meet this guy named Melchizedek. We see this in, Je in uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's, that's, that's all the context the readers of Psalm 110 would have had about this Melchizedek guy. They would have to look forward in faith that they would indeed have a better king and a better priest. And from where we sit in redemptive history, we see that they do. And his name is Jesus. And that brings us to our present. Um, from where we sit here in Camp Hill in 2021, we've got a much different perspective than the original audience reading Psalm 110 would have, or the Pharisees who listened to Jesus quote it, or even the, the apostles who would quote it in Acts chapter 2, as we heard earlier. Um, we get to see uh, some great contrasts uh, at play here. And so there's, on one side, we have the Old Covenant with that God gave to Abram, Abraham and to Moses. And on the other hand, we have the new covenant that we celebrate when we come to this table. And that's the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so I want to I dig into two contrasts here. Um, the first one being the contrast between the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Christ. David was looked at as this model monarch of the nation of Israel, a man after God's own heart. He persevered through hardships. 
He kept the faith. He honored God and was loved by the people. His kingdom advanced regionally. He used armies, swords, lots of blood, lots of pillaging. It was a very violent expansion. But it wasn't, and he wasn't, the perfect king. As we saw even just last week, David made a lot of bad decisions. His family was an absolute wreck, largely from the decisions that he made. The lands that he won, the beautiful things that he built, um, and his great accomplishments eventually all faded into history. But most importantly, King David eventually died. It doesn't matter what a great warrior he was. He could not overcome uh, the greatest enemy of all, which was death. Christ, in contrast to that, he lived the perfect life. In his death, he defeated death, and he sat at the right hand of God. And if we look again at verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. When we read about David, this guy's got like a caffeine addiction. He's always doing something. He's out and about and always taking on the next enemy. There's always something that keeps him up at night. Something is leaving him feeling insecure. Well, look at Christ's presence. Look at his posture here. What's he doing? He's sitting. He rests in God's presence. He rests because the work has been completed. He rests because he's defeated the enemy already, and he reigns on the throne. A lot of people are okay, and myself included in this, with Jesus taking the wrath that they deserve and receiving the grace that he offers, but have a much harder time living under his kingship because he indeed sits on the throne. But what does it mean in verse 3 when David says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power? To offer ourselves freely means to surrender. It means to lay down. And it's an unconditional surrender. And personally, this truth has been painfully learned. As, as some of you know, I am an entrepreneur. I started my first business with my college roommate and a few friends out of our college dorm room. Uh, we had the chance to bootstrap two companies. We had a team spread across the world. Um, and from the outside, everything looked hunky-dory. Um, but behind the scenes in those early years of running a business, uh, we were struggling. Um, the expenses of running a business and keeping a team employed, um, that, that had a weight to it. And as those expenses continued to grow, um, things became tight at home. This brought a lot of pressure into our family life. Um, I would uh, keep telling Rachel that uh, next month is going to be better. And sometimes it was, but most of the time it wasn't. Um, it would just stay tight and tight and tight. Um, and things got to a point where any sane person would have just looked for a job. But for me, with that stamp of entrepreneur on my chest, that felt impossible. My, my entire identity was wrapped up in that title of entrepreneur. The thought of even just walking away from that, of taking a paycheck from somebody else, um, that was humiliating. That's not anything I wanted to think about. Um, 
But things got to a point where I couldn't keep my head stuck in the sand any longer. I hit my rock bottom, which is often right where God wants us. And in that moment, he shook me. And it was in this low moment when I felt like a complete failure that God was working in my heart. And he spoke to me through my prayer time with him, through hard conversations with Rachel, in talks with my Bible study guys, um, in our discipleship group. It wasn't one conversation or one moment when I saw the light shine through the clouds or anything like that. But in this season, I heard God say, let go and trust me. And in this, I realize what it means to surrender and to trust the king who sits on the throne. I let go, and I took a break from entrepreneurship. I spent a a year working for somebody else. And what followed was not a loss of identity, but a gaining of it. It was a beautiful season of rest and of renewal. And God showed me what it means to be in a place where my identity is in him and not in a title that I put on myself. You see, God has done the work. Our future is secure because of what he has done for us. All he asks in return is that we surrender. Christ is a better king than David because he sits on the throne forever, firm and secure. He has already defeated death. And how are we meant to live in this surrender, this letting go? With that question in mind, let's look lastly at the contrast between the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ. You see, priests were instituted to intercede between God and his people. God is a holy and a perfect God. Humanity is sinful. God cannot be in the presence of sin. So how do we reconcile this relationship? The office of priest was installed to help reconcile this this divide. These priests would offer sacrifices to atone for sin, both for themselves, for their families, and for the nation of Israel. This wasn't something that they just needed to do once, though. You couldn't just grab your goat and go to the priest, and he would offer it as a sacrifice, and then you were clean and good to go. No, this this was ongoing as an atonement for their sins. And the author of Hebrews points to this model that it couldn't make people perfect because of this repetitive nature of it. Um, You had to keep coming back time and time again because ultimately the blood of an animal could never atone for the sins of of the human heart. It could only bide time. To truly restore our relationship with our creator, we needed a more perfect sacrifice. Christ changed all of this. Hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition of this separation were shattered because he was both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest to offer that sacrifice. In Christ, we see both of those pictures of the sacrifice and the priest offering the sacrifice. You see, once a year, the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, and this is where God's presence dwelt uh, amongst his people. And in there, he would offer sacrifices for the nation as a whole. But the moment that Jesus died, this separation between God and his people was broken. 
We read in Scripture that the curtain, the veil that separated the Holy, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was literally torn in two. So from the moment of Christ's death, we see that his work was accomplished, that we've restored relationship with our Father based on the work of Christ. This is our hope. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has made perfect for all time those who are now being sanctified. And that is you and I, brothers and sisters, who place our faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't our ability to be a good person. It isn't how often we come to church. It isn't how deep we go in our quiet time, how often we read our Bibles. And if you ever struggle with this thought that I'll never be good enough, that they don't know what I've done, or that I'm still struggling with this thing, I still need to get myself cleaned up and get my act together, let me share this with you. When Christ looks on you and he sees those sins that the devil's holding in your mind over you, he says to you that my grace is bigger than that one and it's bigger than that one and it's bigger than that one. You see, our hope comes from the fact that Jesus died the death that we deserve, that I deserve, that you deserve, so that we may receive the blessings that he deserved. Because of Jesus, we have access to the Father. Because of his work, we can come into that presence whenever we want to. There's no longer a separation. So in light of this, I challenge you not to just surrender to his kingship, but to rest in that presence. This is something that I struggle to attain. When I enter into a time of prayer, all too often, my mind is just flooded with noise. It's a list of anxieties it's a list of to-dos. It's a list of random thoughts that I don't know how they got there and I wish they would go away. It can be hard sometimes to come to a place of quiet. But when I feel closest to the Lord, when I realize his presence the most, is when I persevere through that noise, when I'm patient in his presence. Meditating on scripture, even praying the Psalms as we study them this summer, those have been helpful tools for me to come into that quiet presence. God wants more of all of us. Look at the lengths that he's gone to to restore the relationship that we once had in the garden when God would walk with his, crea- with his creatures, humankind. All he asks in return is for our surrender. We see Christ as a better priest than Aaron because he sacrificed and it was enough. He entered the holy place, sprinkled by his own blood, and he sat down at the right hand of God, and there he still sits to this day, mediating on our behalf. We're brought into his family as sons and daughters because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. To just know this as a thought isn't enough, I pray that this thought would travel the distance from head to heart, that our souls would steep in this truth, that we would meditate on this, and that it would change us deeply by the work of the Spirit. And in closing, please think about this. Long before the Lord descended on Mount Sinai and delivered the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses, there was already a great exchange that took place. Here, Abram, the father of Israel and of all the priests, presented tithes to a priest king named Melchizedek. 
His name translated means king of righteousness. And the location where his throne sat was on Mount Zion. It would be the future site of the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And what did this priest king offer Christ in return? Or Abram, sorry? But bread and wine. And what does Christ offer to us? But bread and wine. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God that holds all things in his hands. When we read Psalm 110, may it be a sweet melody in our ears that takes us back to remember the moments of God's faithfulness and make us long for the day when he comes again to gather his people together. Please pray with me. Lord, we look to Christ and say, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, won our peace, and healed our souls. Justified by his blood, we are saved by his life. Glorified by his cross, we bow to his scepter. Having his spirit, we possess his mind. Lord, grant that our religion would not be occasional and partial, but universal, influential, effective. And may we, may we continue in thy words as well as thy works, so that we may reach our end in peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.